Hello, everyone, and welcome to this bonus edition of Fireside Chat Fridays here on Straight Independent Radio. We are sponsored by Parents for Public Schools of Syracuse, and we talk about all things related to public education here in Syracuse. I am your host, Samantha Pierce, and I am joined today by Ms. Talana Jones. She's kind of a legend in the circles that I run in. Um, Ms. Talana is an advocate for families who have children with disabilities. Well, she's one of my heroes. She's the chair of the New York State Early Intervention Coordinating Council, the trainer for the Early Intervention Partners Training Project, and serves on the board of the Central New York NYCLU, New York Civil Liberties Union. Check that out. Um, her master's research centered on a Black womanist understanding of disability and how that lens might impact the creation of future advocacy programs created for families of color. Now, I have to ask you, Ms. Talana, about your master's research, because that sounds absolutely fascinating and something that's kind of needed. Um, I have to tell you, being as a mom of kiddos with disabilities, oftentimes when I walk into the advocacy world, I'm the only brown person in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I can still count on my fingers the number of times that I have not been the only brown person. Mm-hmm. And a couple of those times, you were the other brown person in the room. So, <laughs> That's true. Uh, talk, tell me a little bit about your master's research and the black womanist understanding of disability. So um, I use the language black womanist from Alice Walker's womanist definition. Um, And so we're talking essentially about intersectionality, about our own understandings of being um, oppressed and what that could look like about being a minority in a space. So when we talk about raising young black and brown children, um, even if they're from mixed race and heritage, Um, What we do is bring in the socioeconomic status. What we do is bring in this long history of oppression. What we do is, and I know you talked about this earlier, um, talk about the long understanding of mental health and history with women. Um, And then how all of that comes together to then impact the very children that we're raising. And so our advocacy doesn't come from just anywhere. We, we literally jump into the space already understanding that the children we're raising will face oppression. And so to not advocate just doesn't happen upon us. Do we want to do it all the time? Do we get tired? Do we you know, get frustrated by systems, absolutely. But it's something that we do, but we don't even necessarily know that we're doing it just because by our sheer existence in the world, we've always kind of done it. You know what I'm saying? Um, So that perspective um, is something that I don't think that we give Black mothers enough credit for. Um, It's also in a disability community, like you said, we are usually the pepper and the salt um, in many conversations. And so, and like, we're like the pepper and the salt box. Um, And so to understand disability, not as a white experience only, but to understand that we've been marked and mingled and institutionalized and our bodies have been harmed and our mental health has been harmed through trauma, through experiences and all of these things. Um, But to also understand that, you know, somebody like my son who has Down syndrome is also somebody who was harmed by the outside, not by the fact that he has Mm -hmm. trisomy 21. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. you know, becomes yeah. that much more critical. And so I can't just not like let him just be like, so for me in my home, he gets to just be, but outside in the world, I must say things, you know, I must say things. And even if, even if things are going well for him, I know that I have connections, which means that I have to think about my sisters and brothers who don't have connections. So I got to still talk about all of the issues at hand. Um, So while I appreciate your um, very generous introduction, I also look to you because you have been doing such a wonderful job with this podcast and it's been so informational. Um, The fireside chats have been really wonderful. So, you know, thank you for continuing to be a voice. Well, thank you, Ed. As you spoke, you know, a a few things popped into my head. And Mm -hmm. first was when, when my oldest child was diagnosed, it never occurred to me not to advocate. It was like, oh, okay, I guess this is what I'll have to fight about. For yes, yes. When his, when his brother was diagnosed, you know, I thought, oh, this is going to be an even bigger fight than I thought. It never mm-hmm. occurred to me to not fight. And uh, someone asked me not too long ago um, about a, an incident that we were dealing with. Mm-hmm. Why does it have to be a fight? I'm like, uh, have you not looked at the world? That's why it's, it's not like, a fight. <laughs> it's like that burden is on the systems, right? Like mm-hmm. that burden is not on me. I don't want to. I really would just like to send them out in the world and be okay. I don't want to fight you, honestly. I don't want to have to protest. I don't want to have to do this all the time. However, systems are in place. And I always say this because I think it's true too. Systems have actors, Hmm. right? So sometimes we talk about racism as this larger system, but in order to uphold systems, we have to have actors, which means that you have to talk about ableism. Because that means that those people have to have a sense of what it is to be disabled or not, or feel a way about it because the way that they act towards our children become problematic. Mm -hmm. So you need to talk about the actors and then you need to talk about the larger structures. And both of those things I think are critical. One does not exist without the other. Um, And even though people don't like being called racist, it's like, no, but some people are racist. They are actors. They are harmful towards people who are different than them. Like some people are ableists, like it's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. But then there's a larger structural system that we know that's built in, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like one of those things where it's like, maybe I had a few months of being like, okay, I'm sad. They gave me an entire list of all of the things that he's not going to do. And then the reason I think I took on a black woman is understanding is because my grandmother and my mother, you know, sitting at their feet, understanding who we are as black women, we're like, we done been through having an understanding of not being well according to other people Hmm. so we don't got time for that (laughs) (laughs) not when we've been you know so wonderful and all of the things that we've done like if we had taken that in we might not have done our best you know what I'm Mm -hmm. saying so I try to my advocacy is around ensuring that one, he doesn't internalize these things about himself, two, that I don't internalize these things about himself, but more importantly, that he is excellent at whatever he's able to do. And those things take a fight. Yeah. And 
I, I love that you say that systems have actors and they also have structures. Because mm-hmm. one of the things I think that people don't often realize about racism or ableism, mm-hmm. sometimes there's not the intent of malice. Right. Some, you know, people aren't trying to be mean. They aren't trying right. to be racist. They aren't trying to be ableist. But the things that they're used to doing, mm-hmm. those things have the impact mm-hmm. of discriminating based on race or ability. Absolutely. And so you, when you say is, you know, people don't like being told that they're being racist. Well, yeah, but gosh, stop and take a look around <laughs> you. You know, maybe change the perspective just a little bit, just enough so you can maybe see what's behind you, see what's on mm-hmm. the other side of the door. Maybe go stand next to the next to someone with a disability mm-hmm. and observe what's going on around them. Absolutely. So let me talk about making sure that kiddo does not internalize the negative and, and, and making sure that you don't internalize the negative because yes, I'm an internalizer. I am I'm a recovering internalizer. <laughs> and yeah, that can really break you down when you take in the negative things that people say about you and you start to believe them. So yes, part of my advocacy has been with my children saying, actually, yeah, no, just because you have a disability doesn't mean that that you can you know talk down to your talk down to yourself talk bad about yourself it doesn't mean that you get out of doing things it means that doing things are harder right it doesn't mean that you get out of doing it's like when you actually deal with it on the level what you understand is okay so for example literacy wise the way we talk about that in education. Yes, you might be reading at a third grade level, okay? But you still love opening books and looking at pictures. Mm. And that's amazing for you. And you know what? You know what I'm going to get you? Picture books. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, I'm not forcing you to read i can continue to give you words and all of that good stuff but the standard is not to know a lot of words a lot of people don't know a lot of words <laughs> it's okay yeah. and they live in the world and they're perfectly fine and that has nothing to do with their value and you're talking about somebody who has an intellectually disabled son for whom as a big brown girl when i was young was considered special because they considered me intellectually gifted. Um, So I had to do a lot of unlearning as well around what we place value on. Um, I still like the fact that I know things, but there were so many things I had to relearn and had to understand that I just didn't know. And so we all are learners. We all are are knowers of some things and we don't know everything. And so he's intuitive and he's skillful and he's also an athlete and he is also pretty funny. And, (laughs) you know, he likes great black sitcoms. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's so many things I could tell you about who he is. But I would never know that if I didn't just let him be in the only ways in which I described him was around Mm -hmm. his educational access, right? And so that's why I think that piece becomes that much more critical because like you too, I'm an internalizer. So I used to have to really block messages that I received about him. Like I had to do a lot of work to not take that in and to not be mentally unhealthy around that because there's a lot of people who receive messages around their children and when we say to people oh they're not taking care of their children we don't understand the amount of trauma that might have happened around 
what the messages they received are about their children. And so once they take it in, then they treat them as such. Hmm. And once you treat people as such, it's kind of like, you know, the story already has an end, you know? So, yeah. yeah. That's, that's powerful. It's a self-fulfilling, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will. Yes, having fighting against the, the self-fulfilling prophecy of what will never happen, the things that mm-hmm. they will never be able to do. Mm-hmm. It's a constant battle for me, and I'm constantly reminding parents who are at the beginning of their journey with their child yes. with a disability, no, you don't know what that child will be capable of until yeah. after they've done it. No, they used to wonder how, why do I have Tajay in algebra? And I'm really like, because I don't know whether he'll get the algebraic concept or if in English 10, he learns about Malcolm X and really takes an interest to it. But if he's never introduced to it, then how would I know? And that's, yeah inclusion 101 and that's really why I'm still part of early intervention because I want to get parents at the beginning of their journeys to your point um I'm really committed to early intervention early childhood because I want to get families at the start of the journey because so many people tell you so many harmful things Mm. um about who your kids are going to be yeah. based yeah. on a diagnosis. And I just want to help them begin to unlearn. That's why I always say I'm a facilitator. I'm not a trainer, but I want them to reflect on the fact that they might be ableist just because you have a child with a disability does not mean you're not ableist. Hmm. I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about the intersections of your realities and identities and see how your culture, your representation um, will impact their lives, what's good for them in that moment, what could be harmful um, because of those very reasons. Um, that's, that's why I remain committed to early intervention for those same reasons, Samantha. Awesome, I love it. Because as you were talking about the, the different threads, different pieces that go together with respect to intersectionality and culture and personal history. I thought about all of the different threads that go into weaving fine cloth. And each of Mm. us is like fine cloth. We have all those different threads coming together to weaving together to make us who we are. And Mm -hmm. as a parent, Mm -hmm. as a caregiver, you're in a position to create the threads that become the fine cloth mm-hmm. of your child. Mm-hmm. The finest threads that you can get your hands on. The best of who you are, the best of everybody else that you meet, the best of the experiences that you can manage. Put those all in there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I want to uh, move move our conversation on, and in this context of um, your understanding of advocacy and the understanding of all the different threads that need to be woven together, let's talk about the Syracuse School District. Okay. How have you seen the district changing over time? Uh-oh. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> um so I was very much a part of um and forgive me, I have allergies. I just realized my face is so fluffy. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm right um, there with you. <laughs> um so I was very much part of the former superintendent um, effort to fight for justice 
for students with disabilities and students of color when we changed the code of conduct. Um, I was pretty instrumental um, along with many other people and sitting on that um, task force and then writing that code of conduct. And um, it was an eye-opening experience. Um, and then after that, I performed a lot of professional development along with the, the team um, to really have people think about culturally responsive education and reflect on what they thought about the students that they were teaching. And so I got to hear a lot of stories. And um, what struck me was that, well, there were a lot of people who were very passionate about teaching students that were great. There was also a lot of people who I was like, why are you still in education? <laughs> I don't understand it. Why are you here? Um, just because my grandmother was an early childhood educator and I know how she feels about educating children. And so you have to come to it from a certain perspective. But I saw that people was doing a lot of work, you know, like, there's a lot of people in administration and teachers who are doing a lot of great work. I think that the structures in and of itself, the way the district is built out, can use some help. Mm. Um, <laughs> it could use mm -hmm. some help. Um, I think it could use some standardization. Um, and not really be like each building has its own thing going on, depending on the administrator, because again, when I talk about actors, that means that relies on the person who's running the building. Even though you have these other structures in place, you still are talking about somebody's values and beliefs. Somebody running that money. But yeah, and how they believe things should run. Um kind of moving that effort forward. And if they haven't subscribed to the values that you've put into place um, necessarily or wholeheartedly, then you might not get the outcome for that building, right? And having 34 buildings <laughs> in this district, you know, I don't think we can afford to have that kind of... Um, flexibility right now, right? Because too many things need to change and too many things need to happen. So I do charge that back to the fact that we have uh, in terms in general of education, you know, it's still based off of the old school notion of a farmer's like day yeah, <laughs> you know that ends that starts at eight and ends at three, and mm -hmm. you know there's not that much flexibility. And how do we get to all kinds of students? You know, yes. um, like I think if we started high school at ten a.m., we probably would get more attendance, which is an outcome that the district wants. Yes, you know, and then I've they would for years. <laughs> yeah, and then they will be in school okay. till later, you know, and so they might not be outside as, you know, too early, and they mm -hmm. might not be in more trouble because yeah. they all done with their day. You never know, you know, but it's just something to consider. So I don't know how flexible um, this district is. I think people are used to doing what they do. But I do think that there are folks who are trying to figure it out. I wish that they were more open mm. to people in the community who wanted to come in and assist. Mm. I think there's a lot of loopholes that you gotta jump through um, in order to come in and assist. And I, I that frustrates me because, you know, you give out contracts, you got to have 
um, a certain background and all of these good things. And I'm not talking about something like a background check. I'm talking about just background connections, so forth and so on. And so I wish that wasn't the case because there's a lot of people in the community who really want to connect with students, who really want to mentor students, who really want to help assist families, you know, but can't get in. And so it's like, you don't have to do this all by yourself. Like community schools are very much community schools. The other thing is, is why are your buildings closed at four o'clock? Like your building should be open through the evening. Like, you know, like there should be people who are able to come into those buildings in the evening and run a program or run something and have something for kids to do and not just community centers. So there are ways that leadership could think about what to do, but I wish Syracuse City School District was more flexible. Hmm. Yeah, a to, little bit more to flexible. Respond, to respond to yeah. the community's um, yeah. flexible, wants and needs. responsive, creative. Mm-hmm. Creative, Absolutely. right. Yeah. Yes. It really speaks to the need for a vision within the district for yes. how it's doing education. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a church girl, like, it, it's the, the Bible says, you know, where there is no vision, the people perish. And clearly, Syracuse is suffering because the vision just isn't there. Now, having said that, and you've touched on this a little bit already, what do you think the district should be focusing right now as we kind of get used to the world that COVID has created for us as as more and more people become vaccinated and we're thinking about well, maybe we can go back to the way things were. I don't want them to go back to the way things were. I want them to go back, go forward to something better. But what do you think they should be focusing on right now? Um, So I don't think that it should be attendance. I know that was a big thing for them prior to COVID. And I got it. I understood it. You know, if you don't have the students there, you can't do nothing with them. I get it. But I wouldn't want to be in school either right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think that that's the case. I think the focus should be on securing two things. Securing resources, supports, and services for students period. Mm-hmm. And I'm not just talking about eating. I'm talking about shelter. I'm talking about literacy. I'm talking about tutoring. I'm talking about, right, like all of these things that assist students in school who might be struggling. Because even though I often talk about students with disability, the truth is, is that we have a major literacy issue. Mm with our students. And so it's not just students with IEPs who have a literacy deficit. Like, and I say deficit in a way that doesn't mean a hierarchical moment, but more like they're not on um, task with whatever this grade and age is supposed to be. Mm. Um, And so, Like, what are those supports and services? Like, what do you need to put into place in order to have students have the best school experience? Yeah. Because they need assistance. And extend that to families. Because so many of us, when I walk into an IEP meeting, I tell them, listen, I do early childhood Tajay is going into the 12th grade. I don't know what the 12th grade curriculum is. Please help me. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. So I need you to share the information. 
Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Tell me what he got to know in 12th grade. So then now from there, we could build out a plan so that he has a great outcome, right? Mm-hmm. But that yeah. should be a meeting that you're having with families or a letter because some families are not going to come in and have a meeting with you. They might have had a bad experience in school too or a phone call, right? So mm-hmm. all of the flexibility of how we communicate also yeah. with families. Yeah. But then too, um, I think we really do need to use culturally responsive education and continuously having teachers reflect on why they got into education and giving them the tools and the skills Mm. to work with students with multiple needs. This is an urban school district. The suburbs have students with multiple skills too, so it's not only to urban school districts. But because this is one of the large ones, we're considered one of the big five. Mm -hmm. I think it's that much more critical that you invest in your educators to go to things like conferences, to help them get some online courses, to help them um, do self-reflection and awareness around where they are, help them understand when they're frustrated with the system or the students, because that's okay too, right? They're adults, yeah. they're, they're human. What, what is doing that so that they can see whether it's the actual student that's frustrating them or whether it's the structure, you know, mm-hmm. like they need that opportunity. And so how do you continue to give them that, you know? And so I think those are the kinds of critical things that we need to really sit down, assess, look at, and do. Because that's the other thing, is doing it. Like, after Mm -hmm. we sit down and assess, I think people love to sit down and assess, but they don't do it. (laughs) So I'm I'm the doer. I'm the one who jumps off the cliff and builds my parachute on the way down. Right, right. You know, sometimes that's not the right way to do it. You got to like build a few, build in a few structures before you jump off the cliff. Right. There there has to be that moment where you jump off the cliff so that you have that experience of soaring. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I I totally get it when you say, okay, there comes a point when we need to do enough. Yes. It's like we we did this. We did this last year, guys. All right. We already saw this part. Okay. We could just, if we could just go ahead and do it. Yeah, yeah, just, you know. And then, like you said, see where the parachute is broken, right? Like, hurry up and clip a buckle. (laughs) But, like, if we never get to it, how are we going to even see Hmm. where this is not working? Like, you know, yeah. give me something. Give me something. <laughs> so, yes. you can't yeah. collect any data unless you're actually doing the thing. <laughs> Absolutely. And data is both quantitative and qualitative. This is my son. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> For those of you who are listening, a very handsome young man just waved to the camera. What do you want to say? Do you want to say something? Um, I didn't have to say. I mean, I didn't have to do a football team. You want a basketball team? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm Kobe. And you, Kobe Bryant? <laughs> You're not Kobe Bryant. You're Tajay Jones. <laughs> you know who you are. What do you. you what? Bye. <laughs> <laughs> no. My kiddo does the same thing when my husband's recording anything. He will walk into the frame because he's usually got a, a background behind him. He will walk into the frame and he'll stand just at the point on the threshold of being blending into the background and becoming part of the foreground. And he will just, just, he'll just play. 
So you'll see him popping in and out of the frame. And yeah, that's his entertainment. Yeah, no, that's the that's the children. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so my my last question for you, which we kind of talked about a little bit again, um, what do you think the plans for the future need to be? What do they need to include? We've talked about giving the resources and the training and really investing in the educators so that they can bring their A game, but also recognize that they're human and they have human needs. I love that because my father's an educator. Um, I come from like many of my extended family members mm-hmm. um, are educators. So yes, educators are human beings and they need their human needs care. But what else do we need to be thinking about for the future? What else does the district need to be thinking about for the future? Um, so, and just to back the last thing I said, I just want to start with, you know, you support the people who support children. And if we really think about that, I think we would do much better in all of our work around education. We support educators, we support children. Um, because we often talk about just supporting children's outcomes and, um, I think we forget, you know, how do they get there outside of their families? Um, so I think that's that's a critical stage in which my advocacy really changed um, in terms of my asks uh, was really that. And that's kind of what I'm committed to these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I see the vision for the future, I see an educational system that is flexible, that has multiple times, that has um, buildings that are open, um, that really become, we use the word community schools in like this practical way, but I'm thinking about community schools in a way that says, the community really feels comfortable going in and out of school buildings because I think that's how we increase parent participation. I really think that's how we increase um, community value on our schools. I think Mm -hmm. that's how we save our children and their safety. Um, If they have buildings that are already here, already built, already have facilities, um, and really kind of just open it to the community. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Tajay, I'm doing something. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Granting children patience. Yeah. I think we have to have patience for children and patience for adults, but I don't think that we should underestimate the fact that we have spent a long time on a lot of conversations and that we really kind of need to just be doers at this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so you know, but I really believe in community schools. When I see the vision, I see community, I see the schools being open for the community to hold space in, to have conversations in, to not necessarily have to use our community centers, like those could be a place, but Mm-hmm. Really, with 34 schools in this school district, there's no reason why you couldn't hold a parent meeting in your local school mm-hmm. that you could easily get to, that you could walk to, right? Mm-hmm. Even if your child doesn't go there, there could be an access point for that. Um, and to really be flexible about our children's times in school. I think we really need to think about that. We might even be able to serve more educators who have their own children 
if, you know, we had moments of flexibility. Mm -hmm. Honestly, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're thinking about them taking their own children to school, it might be better for them to get to the school at 10 o'clock and leave at at, at five or six, you know, because somebody Mm -hmm. else could get their kids. It's just, I think I really just want somebody who's a visionary in leadership who is willing to be flexible and who is super committed to the community, not in a way that we think about politically, but in a way that we're talking about hands on connected to the community and want the schools to be connected to the community and are willing to do things with our buildings. That will open them up because I just think that it would change our connection to education beyond just English, reading, writing, math, and attendance mm-hmm. and test scores. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that reminds me of something that came to mind when you were talking about um, the focus needs to be, and you said, not on attendance and and it you know immediately popped into my head well is there anything happening in school that draws the children there i have been told by some of my children no (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna say i was like i have i have too many um (laughs) i have too many mentees that are like um yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're very clear that they go there so they can see their friends. Um, it's, social, it's social yeah. and it's also like a sense of duty. Mm, Depending yeah. on who your parents are, it's like a sense of duty. Like my son gets up in the morning and he's like, it's school. So that's what I'm doing because it's school. Not because he loves school. He loves school because he used to go to school and see all kinds of people. But now that he's virtual, um, he kind of does school. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing. I think for a long time, parents with disabilities have been at the forefront of trying to get the district to think about multiple ways of accessing education. And yeah. as we can see, Um, virtual education is actually really helpful for some people. It's also Mm -hmm. hard for some people, but Mm -hmm. I think if we will also, when you talk about being a visionary or having a vision, being super committed to what we provide for students who might need to stay home yeah, or who might not be social or who are struggling in their current classroom environment, what do we think about providing the appropriate equipment, mm-hmm. assistance with internet, so forth and so on, um, in yeah. order for them to be successful? Because I think, you know, providing two months of internet when you know you're about to have a whole school year online just... Yeah, exactly. And we've talked we've talked on Fireside Chat about the, the digital divide, where this part of the country, internet mm-hmm. access, yeah, no, I remember that is is uh yeah, it sucks. Okay, mm-hmm. that's the simplest way to put it. And it's the twenty first century, and people need to be able to access that for learning. <laughs> and we and do need to have those that flexibility and those options available for us our students. And you can't only, you can't say that we are an urban school district that experiences concentrated poverty and then expect that people are gonna have their internet on the entire time. Mm -hmm. That's not their rent, right? That's not their Mm -hmm. car bill. That's not their transportation to work. That is something that they could let go of as a bill. You know what I'm saying? 
Yeah. So, and I know people who have done that. Absolutely. It's not the most critical bill. You know, when you're paying your rent in your national grid, and if you have a car, you're paying your car note, you know, and insurance, or you're paying your transportation to work. Mm. So that's not your most, the the foremost. It's just really not because at the end of the day, it's like, listen, before you Mm -hmm. could go outside and get some internet from somewhere else, you know, you could log into somebody else's Wi-Fi or something. I mean, just, we just keeping it real, but you know, hang out at the library. Yeah. Most so now that you can't get there, even though, like for example, for me, that becomes the most important bill because we have been virtual even before they closed down schools. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's it's like I can't have cable. I can only have internet. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> oh, exactly. We, make, yeah, we made that, that twice like over a decade ago. Yeah, I had to change that package all the way around. I was like, wait, no. Mm-mm, okay. <laughs> but everybody don't know to do that. And not for nothing. Again. It's the district that had to go virtual. So why couldn't you assist families or come up with something with Spectrum Mm -hmm. in terms of leadership, right? Come up with something with Spectrum where you was like for families who have students in K to 12 programs, this is the monthly cost, right? Like that's the kind of thing where when I think structure, yes, right? It's like... But then, but then you penalize families and students who don't show up to class, and you don't know what's going on with them. And you talk about mental health and trauma between the children being depressed and them being depressed. Who knows who's showing up? Like, yeah, <laughs> um. it's the whole thing. Yeah, I I had to pull out all my skills for my kiddos over the last year, and I, you know, I was the house therapist. Yeah. <laughs> for the duration, I was the house therapist before the pandemic. I was the house therapist during the pandemic. <laughs> um, I'm still the house therapist, and yeah, that's a lot. Managing the mental health of myself and six other people. Yes. Yes. But it's not, but it's like, that would have been one less thing to think about. Mm-hmm. Right? That could have been a resource and support that was like one less thing to have to think about. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that becomes key to anxiety and depression and so forth Mm -hmm. like right now my face is so fluffy because I have allergies because I live on this side of town I live near the harbor so I feel like I'm just every time I look at my face I'm like oh Jesus lordy I'm super fluffy but that's why I'm looking at the camera and not the screen yeah listen I can't I gotta I can't um but even just, you know, cutting off my hair. I was like, I don't got time to do here. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I was just like, I don't have time to do that. I just, I don't have time. I'm in class. Yeah. I tell people I'm back in high school. I'm my yeah. son's one-to-one. Yes. Because they also didn't figure that out. <laughs> no, no, they didn't. And And yes, I got to be... Uh, we were one to one for our college kid and our high school kid. So, well, one of the high school kids. And so, yeah, when and you think about vision, Samantha, right? Like, how do you support students with disabilities who still may be virtual due to their own medical fragility? 
yep. depending on what they have, because they still might not be able to come back to school. Or there were students who was always not supposed to really be in the school building, mm-hmm. right? So how do mm-hmm. you support their education, given that that's their civil right? Like, yes. at this point, what we've seen is, is that given the exercises that they do in class, you're talking about children toggling between a screen from one screen to another. You don't know if they have those computer skills because when do they use them when they was actually in school? Mm-hmm. So you're requiring support from people who were supposed to be at work. So it's only because I'm not at work that I'm able to really do that. But that wasn't until October. And so what does that mean? Like, that means you need to send some assistance and it's not just sending paper. So we need to have this. Say that again. Say that again. (laughs) It's not just sending paper home, you know? And so it's like, this is the moment where, right? Like for some things, I want you to jump out the, the, jump off the cliff. For other things, I really would like for you to have a conversation about and think about how to support it and then go do it. Yes, yes. That's the kind of conversation that I think you need to bring in families, see what those multiple needs are, and figure out how to continue to help and support. Ms. Kalana, thank you so much for joining me today for this conversation. I really appreciate it. I love talking to you. I love listening to you talk. I always love it when kiddo shows up (laughs) and brings his huge personality. I love it. He's annoying. And I'm sitting here with a shrimp with cocktail sauce that I can't eat on the camera yet because I just I'm too fluffy looking right now. And then Mm. I don't want to be chewing, too. It's too much. (laughs) Well, I will let you go then so you can enjoy your shrimp cocktail. This is Fireside Chat Fridays sponsored by Parents for Public Schools on Straight Independent Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Samantha. Have a great day. Thank you.